when you set out to write a mystery about Edgar Allan Poe or a mystery about the school of night that Shakespeare mentioned in one of his plays, mm-hmm. do you go, ah, I've got to solve that. That's a, that's a historical mystery that needs to be solved. Or you go, God, Edgar Allan Poe was weird. I wonder what story I could put him in. How do you get <laughs> into these stories? Uh, well, let's start with Poe. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 761, The Historical Gap. Happy Lanford Wilson Day to all who celebrate. Today's the 5th of July, and yesterday I had the great pleasure of speaking with Lewis Byard, whose two novels, The School of Night and The Pale Blue Eye, I consumed back-to-back last month. Both historical mysteries, The School of Night concerns a secret and possibly dangerous Elizabethan society that Shakespeare may or may not have revealed in one of his plays, while The Pale Blue Eye concerns a murderer committed at West Point Academy in the 1830s, where young cadet named Edgar Allan Poe is both one of the people assigned to catch the killer and one of the suspects. As a huge fan of all of these elements, I was excited to talk to Lou about how these stories came to him and how they get written. It actually came out of a book, I think you've read Mr. Timothy. I'd, I'd written this book. It was an homage to Dickens, who was my favorite writer growing up. Uh, and I had such a good time with it that I thought, oh, I need to find another um, literary corpus to plunder from the, the graveyard, right? Some Some dead writer who I can make my involuntary collaborator. And I thought about Poe because, God, he's he's just, he's like the, per, the purloined letter. He's always in plain sight. He's he's influenced everything, you know? He's, you can see his his tracks on everything, you know, from from the mystery story to the horror story to, he's, he, he did the first, one of the first buried treasure stories um, wow. and the gold bug, yeah. And uh, he did some early sci-fi kind of stuff, early proto Jules Verne. He was, he was just so, um, such a huge influence on our literature. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun to plop him in the middle of a detective story, the, the genre that he himself created with the murders in the room morgue uh, and have him fend for himself as it were. Um, so really after that, the, the question was, okay, which part of Poe's life do we address? And it was then that I was reminded that he spent six feckless months at West Point, which I, most people don't know. And, and um, it's funny because at UVA, they, they, he also spent six months there. And they, they keep his room as a shrine to him, right? Like there's a there's, it's basically a shrine to Poe. There's not a sign of him in West Point. He he has just been. I think they're just embarrassed by him. There there's you know they're um, they've kind of erased him from their from their midst. Is there a, a big art swing generally at the West at West Point? I know. <laughs> I wouldn't guess. I wouldn't guess. Um, but you talked about you know the mystery. That so the mystery for me is what was Poe even doing there? Why was why was he at West Point? And biographers have kind of speculated, but it's not clear what he was doing there. Um, although he did serve some time in the military as well, so he you know it wasn't completely out of keeping. But at the time, West Point was a, um, basically an engineering school, and um, so yeah, what was this guy who really wanted nothing more than to be a poet? That's all he really wanted to do with his life. What was he doing? there. Um, so there was that mystery element too, but I thought it would also be fun to sort of 
um, prefigures some of the, his later stories. So the, the book is the, the Pale Blue Eye, that comes from the Telltale Heart. That's the, that's the part of the old man that drives the narrator to want to kill him. And then there's a missing heart as well in, some, in, in, the, in the action itself. And there are various kind of little, you know, House of Usher and things along the way, little Easter eggs, I guess we'd call them now, to kind of show that where these, these stories might have come out of. But it was great fun to write. And um, I, the first thing that came was the first thing in the book, which is a, a, a po poem, a pastiche, if you will, that I, that I just decided to start writing. And, and it just sort of came out in a kind of mystical way. And it's like, oh, this is going to be fun. So went from there. That's amazing. And did it remain fun or did you go, oh, hell, this isn't as fun as I thought it was. This is more work. <laughs> well, as you know, I mean, any kind of long form work, it, 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 it's, it's a bear. So, and for me, any, every book I'd write takes ultimately two years between the research and the writing and the rewriting and all and the editing, all that stuff. So it's a long process. So yeah, it, it's not going to be fun every step of that way. I remember too, that this book uh, went through a fairly extensive second edit with my then my wonderful editor Marjorie Brayman, who is who's since died, but uh, she was she was really she was so um, word isn't stern, just upfront and honest in her critique, and so in a in a very helpful way, I consider her a mentor. Um, but one of the things she had me do, she said, "There's a character in here. Her name was Mrs. Cropsey, and she's really performing no plot function. So you you probably should just get rid of her." It's like get. Wait, get rid of her. <laughs> she was she was a secondary character, but she had she was in a lot of scenes and she had her own death scene. And so I was like, get rid of her. And that went, but she was absolutely right. I went back and I realized I had just written her to keep me company. Uh, I just enjoyed having her around, but she didn't have any plot function. So I had to go through, and it's actually much harder to get rid of a character than kill one. Um, because you have to kind of go go through scene by scene and and take them out, ease them out, unravel their thread, you know, without disturbing the whole. Thing. And um, then knit it back together. Close the it, close yes. the suture. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's yeah. A, that's, that's exactly it to to perfect the metaphor. So so that, but it was it was worth doing. And and um, yeah, no, it's just about sometimes you don't know what your your true story is. So and it was also in the second draft that I realized that this is really a story like a father son relationship between mm -hmm. Poe and this older detective Lander. They're kind of surrogate family for each other. Um, and that's to me kind of the, what the heart of the book is, is their is their relationship. And how how long did it take you to find the, you, the your narrator of the pale blue eye? Um, I knew I, I didn't want it. Well, Poe actually is is a sort of subsidiary narrator, so there was there was some in, 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 in imitation of his voice too. But I wanted it to be some guy who'd be Poe's antithesis. So I was very conscious that he would write, he would speak. In effect, his voice would be Anglo-Saxon, shorter words you know, harder, kind of almost a hard, more of a hard boiled sound to him because Poe himself is so, is so purple and, and um, florid, florid and polysyllabic and all those wonderful words, you know, that yeah. the tintinabulation of the, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah. Um, yeah. wonderful words. But I wanted the other guy to be sort of his opposite. So every time I, I, I had a decision is like, go with the simpler word, go with the harder, more Anglo-Saxon sound. So Which is also in keeping with sort of hard-boiled detective novels yes, too. There's a yes, yes, yes. I mean, this is a hundred years. This is eighteen thirty, so that's almost a hundred years before yeah. the first hard-boiled stories. But yeah. But you also, but you also got to go back to the fun of recreating Poe's voice in these yeah. missives, yeah. these reports that yeah. he files, and those are huge fun. Those oh letters. God, I'm glad you said that. They were fun to write. I actually listened. I, I, you appreciate this. 
um, I had to get that Poe voice. So I listened to tapes of recordings of Vincent Price and Basil Rathbone. Wow. Doing the old stories, yeah, the old stories and some of the poems, and it was, it was that it, it really helped me just hear, having it orally um, in my ear, feeling it, getting that, that those cadences. A few lines I actually took from him, but I, I'd say ninety-eight percent of it is just pastiche poem. Uh, well, but it was and, great. And, and that reminds me too. Um, I can't, I can't remember whether we've talked about this or not, but in a in a former life in college, you were sort of theater trash too, weren't you? <laughs> Trash is the word. Trash is the word. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, I, I, there's, but there is an element of the theatrical in all of your books, which is, I think, why I love them so much. Oh, good. That's good to know. Um, that's good to know. Well, I do, and I know you do this with your work, but I do read my stuff aloud. Oh. Um, that's how. That's I. And I actually, I teach students. I uh, teach a, a class at George Washington, and I, I always encourage students to edit by reading aloud. It's amazing what you'll learn about your work when you read it out loud. You'll hear the, the fat, you'll hear the stuff that isn't working, but it also helps with dialogue. And, and so I think the theater background that you referred to help, makes dialogue pretty easy for me. Um, at, least, at least it's not something I stress about. Um, so it's, it's often how I block out a chapter is with dialogue and then I'll fill in the, the harder stuff. Well, and you don't, you don't make a meal of it either, but your detective, uh, uh, Augustus Landor? Yes. Is yeah. is that that's the the first name that the Christian name that Poe took for his detective, right? Yes, okay. exactly. Good call, good catch, good catch, Austin. Yes, Auguste Dupin, Auguste Dupin, which is uh, who who just sits around in Paris, um, uh, solving things. I mean, the fascinating thing about the Poe stories is there's really no action to them. Um, the crime in the murders in the Rue Morgue happens off off the page, so all the action is really the cerebration of Dupin kind of looking at all this, this, these clues, reading various newspaper articles and just figuring it out. And it was Poe's genius to realize that, that there was something just fascinating about that, you know, that, about that, well, that process. And that prompts what is probably a parenthetical and easily cuttable question. Why aren't you writing um, recaps of Lupin for the New York Times? <laughs> I haven't been asked, but I, have you been watching that show? Yeah, we just finished I the love, second season. I love that show. I love how they've updated it. I love the the act. The, um, is it Omar C? Is that how you say his name? I think so. C. Yeah. So charismatic and just. Oh my like, gosh! Oh, I can't. It's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful entertainment. They've done. Such it a is great job. really super fun, and 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 I guess the in joke, and maybe there's a, a racist racial commentary in it, but yeah. to, you know he goes unnoticed throughout Paris. The the largest, handsomest, most charming <laughs> <Right>. black man <laughs> yes. in Paris. Yeah. Goes unnoticed, but I guess that's that's part of it. As you said, that's the the joke is that it's because he's a man of color that, that that he's not seen in the same way. At one point, he doesn't he pose as a janitor or something? Yeah, at the Louvre, was it at the Louvre or something? At the Louvre, so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's so great how they they work that. It's really wonderfully done, and if anybody's listening is encouraged to to watch it, uh, I encourage you to watch it in the original French with the English subtitles because the English yes. dubbing is terrible, terrible. There's there's dubbing. Oh no, I ne I, I try never to do any. Much anything yeah. dubbed, you know. Hey, bonjour. Je suis Russell Lees, scénariste à Ubisoft Montréal. Et vous écoutez le podcast Reduced Shakespeare Company. <laughs> Thank you. 
I hate to ask the question, where do you get your ideas from? I mean, unless the answer is, I got a trunk and I just open it and I pull out an idea. Where where did the idea for the School of Night come from? That was just a Google crawl, kind of like a pub crawl, but but going from, from website to website. Uh, literally, I just spent a day just sort of following links. I mean, I do this anyway on my own, which is sad. Um, no, no, no. It's part of a writer's <laughs> process. Writer's process. Thank you. Thank you for dignifying it. Um, so I was just crawling along, um, yeah, jumping link to link, link to link, and I came across the School of Night. And it really was the first book, only book I've ever written that was inspired by a title. I just thought, the School of Night. You talked again, every book for me, whether it's a mystery or not, is there is a mystery at the heart of it. And that was just the mystery of the School of Night. What what is what is that? As soon as I saw that name, I was like, I had to know. I had to know. So uh, just did a deep dive on that, and got got to deal with Shakespeare and and Christopher Marlowe and Walter Raleigh, of course. And and but of course the 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 hero of the book is a, a, a long forgotten, at least in the states, um, scientist, Elizabethan scientist named Thomas Harriet, who was doing some amazing things, uh, but because of the political climate, couldn't. Um, um, couldn't disclose them in the same way. And he, and was also one of the first uh, um, Englishmen to set foot in the New World, wrote, wrote a book about it. Um, he was there before the Lost Colony. So um, the more I learned about it, I was like, oh my gosh, he's gotta be the, he's gotta be the hero of this. And then there, there was a, a, a modern day narrative of, as well, which was woven in. It was, it was a, that, this was, it was a lot of work. That's what I have to say. I spent a lot of time just figuring out how, the, how these two narratives would weave together and there's all sorts of stuff. Well, I mean, you, you had me uh, in the opening pages when it's clearly gonna take place in more than one time period and opens at the Folger Shakespeare Library. Right. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Um, you mentioned that, that uh, uh, no matter what kind of novel it is, there's always a mystery at the heart of it. What there's there's an element of um, I mean, it's historical fiction, I guess, but there's an element of fan fiction mm. in your books that I love so much. You know, whether you're writing about Dickens, you know, Tiny Tim, grown up, or Teddy Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln, or Edgar Allan Poe, or Marlowe and J Thomas Harriet and whatnot. You're you're I mean, it seems it's not. It seems like you're crawling in, going, "I want to. I don't know what happened, so I want to find out what happened." And here's my take on it: is it is is that kind of an impulse for you? Oh sure, oh yeah. sure. It's it's just it's just so damn much fun to kind of explore these these lost worlds. And of course, many of them are lost. We we don't know. We know very little about the School of Night. We don't know if they ever actually met um, in any kind of formal sense. We know that they were all dabblers in various kinds of black arts and heretical ideas but you know it's like what would that have looked like what would the school of night have been like if it had been so there, there's speculative it's fan fiction there's also speculative fiction too yeah just trying to imagine your way in and that to me is the glory about being a, a writer of fiction is i can i can just make shit up or or imagine my way in uh, in a way that a historian really can't. So I feel quite fortunate to be able to. to do well, that. and you're able to, I, I think that's true. The uh, fiction writers are able to crawl in, imagine what might have happened. And 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 it's the way sort of we come to understand what maybe probably did happen. Something very similar to this. The School of Night is is mentioned in Sha by Shakespeare, right? In one yes, of the in Love's Labor is Lost. A yes. show I did actually back in my college trash days. And um, yeah, and actually I said that line, it, it made no resonance with me at the time it was just sort of a th it's really kind of a throwaway line right but uh so but there's a theory that he was he was calling out he was he was calling out walter raleigh and his friends and sort of 
Um, so lots, lots of, the lots of theory, not a lot of evidence about any of it. No, but I, I'm, I'm a big sucker for all of that too. It's like, cause we're always, I mean, I just asked you where you get your ideas. It's like, all right, well, where did Edgar Allan Poe get his influences? Where did Shakespeare get yeah. it? I mean, and we're all writing about, we're all, whatever we're writing about, we're informed by what's going on in the world. I mean, in somehow, this is not even a question. I'm just holding forth now. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, thank you, Professor. Um, <laughs> but it's fun to it's fun to imagine knowing knowing that that's how it affects us. It's fun to imagine how the world around these authors affected their writing and crept sure. into it. Sure, sure. And to think about you know Shakespeare and Marlowe would certainly have known each other, right? Some of them they were they were both in the theater around the same time. They're both two of the leading lights of the theater in their day. They would they almost they would have known each other. I mean, I, I think. Uh, Shakespeare and love gets into that a little bit too, but so yeah, you know, what, what would that relationship have looked like, and and how would yeah, and of course there's a whole period of Shakespeare's life I forget how many years in the 1580s. It's like eight years, something like eight that. Eight years yeah. where he just drops off the map. Yeah, he just completely. There's just no record of him at all. We have no idea. He starts and he, he begins in, in Stratford. By the end of it, he's in London. He's in London. Uh, yeah, and so yeah. how what happened in between? And again, that's the especially the further back you go, the less we know. Um, and look look what a wonderful time um, uh, Hilary Mantel had with the Wolf Hall trilogy, you know, it, it, just imagining her way. Because again, not not a lot of data about this guy, yeah. Thomas Cromwell. So she was able to just since come at him as a novelist would, as a, just create a character from not a lot of evidence. Have you ever seen like um, a gap in the historical record specific and gone specifically I need to fill that gap. I need to figure out what happened, that bridge that got us from point A to point B. I mean, you talked about Shakespeare's missing years, and I guess yeah. there's Roosevelt's youth, too. He traveled a lot. Roosevelt's youth. And Roosevelt, yeah, this 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 crazy trip he took through the the um, the, the Amazon jungle and nearly died there. Um, the, the real life story is pretty fascinating itself. But yeah, it's like, what, what was going on in there? Yeah. Well, so, and is you, so are your impulses ever that uh, uh, <laughs> pedagogic, didactic, <laughs> or is it always uh, it always comes from a, a more fun place? I guess. I think it, yeah, it had, there has to be a, yeah, because otherwise, I think didacticism is the enemy of 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 good fiction. Honestly, if you're trying to, you know, make a point, teach a lesson, it's like there's nothing more deathly, I think, than reading that on the page. But I mean, for instance, um, courting Mr. Lincoln was inspired by. Um, the the a lot of historical theorizing about the relationship between Lincoln and his best friend Joshua Speed and and there is a gap in the record in terms that we have we have for instance Lincoln's letters to Speed which are very suggestive um, yeah. but we don't have the letters that Speed wrote back and we you know there's there's parts of their relationship have kind of fallen out off of the the grid so it, again it's about re sort of figuring out okay what was going on there and of course. All this stuff was happening while um, Speed uh, Lincoln, excuse me, was courting Mary Todd. So you had this interesting, what I consider to be a love triangle happening in Springfield, Illinois, around this time. And that, so yeah, it, it's it, it's, but it comes, it is ultimately fun. Yeah, for, you know, someone like me, and this is true of you too, probably. I'm I'm a history geek. I love this stuff. Yeah. So I'm always, you know, oh God, wow, what was going on there? And there, there's so many wonderful mysteries still out there.
That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. It was just announced recently that The Pale Blue Eye will be made into a movie starring Christian Bale with Harry Melling, who played Dudley in the Harry Potter movies and will soon be seen as Malcolm in the upcoming film of Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand will play Edgar Allan Poe, which I think is terrific casting. For now, you can find Lewis Byard's wonderful novels The School of Night and The Pale Blue Eye everywhere, and you can follow Lou on Twitter at Lewis Byard. Then send us your historical fan fiction via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and I hope you'll check out my new website, The Shakespeareans. There you can find more information on how I can help you with monologues, presentations, or writing projects. Check out The Shakespeareans. And my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Austin Titchener. Thanks as always to Grim Discovery Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band, and this week by Nick Graham, who wrote the music for History Ain't What It Used to Be from our Complete Millennium Musical Abridged. Our random fan shout out this week goes to John Thad. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to playwright and noted Poeite Russell Lees. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe and get vaccinated. I'm Austin Titchener, 761-2283rds of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Is there anything pending in the Bayard pipeline? That sounded dirty and I apologize for that. <laughs> Keep, keep keep away from my pipeline, please, if you would. Um, so yes, I just finished a book. It's coming out next June. It's called Jackie and Me. The end is an ampersand. This is my first ampersand in a title. Um, but it's about it's about Jack and Jackie Kennedy, and it's a courtship novel of them, in effect, when they first meet, in, which it happened in Washington, D.C. around 1952. Although it's fascinating, even, even something relatively recent, is, there's a lot of disagreement about how they met and where and when. But anyway, it's it's about it's mostly about Jackie meeting young Jacqueline Bouvier meeting this handsome young um, congressman. But it's told by a guy named Lem Billings, who was Jack's best friend through life, beginning with like Choate, you know, ninth grade onward. Mm-hmm. Had his own room at the White House. They were best buds. Um, but it was also um, what they used to call a practicing homosexual, a clo- closeted but practicing homosexual. Um, I always love that phrase because it's like, if they keep practicing, will they get better at it? Um, it's a, it practice makes perfect. <laughs> so anyway, he was this this um, he was he was gay at a, in a, a time in American history where that wasn't exactly frowned upon, or that was not exactly welcomed. Um, and Jack, both Jack and Jackie knew this apparently, and were cool with it. They were very very much live and let live, which makes me think. Um, higher, better of both of them. But anyway, so he's the narrator of the story and he's telling it somewhat from his perspective with both his slant on Jack and Jackie. Um, and it's, and it's an, another kind of love triangle because he definitely had warm feelings for Jack, but he also was very, felt very tenderly toward, toward Jackie. So he knew, he knew pretty well and he was around when all this stuff was happening. So again, it's, it's my usual promiscuous mix of fact and fiction and um, what well, speculation. And can we talk about that book when it comes out for the podcast? Yes. Yes, absolutely. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.